Uh, I'm so thankful to Brother Williamson this morning uh, for that message and uh, so much of what he was saying tying in uh, to what I would be speaking on uh, this evening. As you can see, I will be speaking on the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. Uh, so much you could say about the sovereignty of God uh, throughout the whole Bible. Uh, but, you know, a, uh, a little while ago, uh, the uh, pastor had uh, asked me about uh, preaching on a uh, Sunday evening. He asked me, was I working on anything? And I said, well, no, not at the time that I was, uh, you know, busily teaching uh, the uh, Sunday school class. Uh, Brother Beeson had allowed me to teach the book of Daniel uh, in the Sunday school class. And he said, well, I, you know, I haven't uh, taught on Daniel in a while. He said, would you mind bringing a message on the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel? Uh, rather narrow, uh, you know, uh, subject, you know, uh, where you talk about the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. But we have uh, been enjoying going through that book of Daniel, uh, and we are now, we're uh, getting ready to get into a little bit more of the uh, uh, prophecy. Uh, once we get through, we're right at the Daniel and the lion's den now. Uh, and then once we get through with that, we'll be getting into uh, chapter 9. So uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be able to go through that book of the Daniel. Uh, that was very impressive, that juggling this morning. That was so impressive. Uh, and I had planned on doing the gymnastics of uh, this evening, but I checked with uh, Dr. Saylor when he came in uh, this evening, and he put me on gymnastic protocol. So you know what you you know so you know what that means. He said, you know, he said, no, uh, no, 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 uh, no gymnastics. He said so. He put me on gymnastic protocol, so I I cannot go past that uh, protocol. Would not want uh, Red Bridge to get fined for me going past the uh, uh, the, the protocol. But uh, the the sovereignty of God in the Book of Daniel. And if you would turn with me to uh, Daniel chapter four. And as a passage of Scripture, we'll use this passage of Scripture to kind of talk about it. It is such an important passage of, uh, uh, on the sovereignty of God and really touches on a lot of what I will be speaking on this evening. But uh, Daniel chapter 4, okay, and then starting with, I believe it is with verse 34 through 37. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways, and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, uh, to preach this evening on the sovereignty of God uh, in the book of Daniel. So much we could say about the sovereignty of God throughout 
uh, Scripture, Lord, from the very Genesis to Revelation. Uh, but as we focus in, uh, down on the book of Daniel this evening, I pray that you would uh, uh, hide me behind the cross, Lord. Allow me to say those things which you have prepared in my heart to say. And may it be received with hearts that are open to receive uh, and as we uh, discuss this sovereignty of God and the importance of it, Lord, in our lives as Christians today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I want to start off this evening, you know, I, I was, uh, in studying this, I came across a book on the sovereignty of God. And uh, I was reading in the introduction of this sovereignty of God, and I was really, I was, I was taken back by what the author said uh, in this introduction on the sovereignty of God. He says, but who is regulating affairs on this earth today, God or the devil? Attempt to take a serious and comprehensive view of the world. What a scene of confusion and chaos confronts us on every side. Sin is rampant. Lawlessness abounds. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. Today, everything appears to be out of joint. Thrones are creaking and tottering. Ancient dynasties are being overturned. Nations are in revolt. Civilization is a demonstrated failure. Half of Christendom was but uh, recently locked together in a death grapple. And now that the titanic conflict is over, instead of the world having been made safe for democracy, we have discovered that democracy is very unsafe for the world. Unrest, discontent, and lawlessness are rife everywhere. And none can say how soon another great war will be set in motion. Statesmen are perplexed and staggered. Men's hearts are failing uh, them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Do these things look as though God had full control? And I said, my, it looks like he has taken part of his introduction right off of the evening news. Couldn't take it out of the newspaper, at least not this author couldn't. But it looked like he had taken it right off the internet. Maybe he took it off the internet. No, he couldn't take it off the internet either. For you see, the author of, that, of this book is A.W. Pink in The Sovereignty of God. And it was in his introduction of his edition that was written in 1918. The great war that he was talking about was World War I. And, and as the nations were coming out of World War I. But some of the things that he described could very well have been 2022 in our world today. We do have, you know, so much lawlessness. We do have so much discontent. We do have thrones that are creaking. We do have, you know, people who are fearful and so fearful of what will happen next and what is going to happen in the end and when is this going to happen and how is this going to happen. Politicians are not what they used to be. Uh, and even as we approach the, the uh, midterm elections, so much at stake during those midterm elections that we as Christians need to pay attention to. But I looked at that and I said, if that was happening in 1918, and it's still so very relevant to us today. Sovereignty. Let's, before we start to talk about the sovereignty of God, let's get a working definition for the sovereignty of God. It says the word sovereign is both a noun and a verb. 
As a verb, it means to rule, and as a noun, it means king or absolute ruler. When we say that God is sovereign, then we are saying that God is in charge of the entire universe all the time. God's sovereignty means that he is absolutely free to do what he wants, when he wants, where he wants, how he wants, and to whom he wants, because he is sovereign. You know, we could go from, like I said, Genesis to Revelation, looking at verses about the sovereignty of God. I've chosen a few that kind of cover both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, first of all, in James, uh, Genesis 1-3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. Then in Proverbs 19:21 it says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Who is he that says, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? Lamentations 3, 37. But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. Psalms 115, 3. And in James 4.15 in the New Testament, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this and that. If he wills. If it's according to the sovereignty of God. And so the sovereignty of God is something that is it's a, a, a doctrine that is, is so very relevant to our lives as Christians. It is a doctrine that we need not uh, be afraid of or run away from. You know, but it is a doctrine that we need to understand and a doctrine that we need to definitely practice in our life in, as believing in the sovereignty of God. So this evening, I want us to explore the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. And I want us to see and ask ourselves and answer the question, who really is in charge? Who really is in charge? In the book of Daniel, we discover this about the sovereignty of God. You know, most of the Old Testament, we learn about the sovereignty of God in Israel. But in Daniel, we learn about the sovereignty of God outside of Israel. When we see God use pagan Gentile rulers to execute judgment, you know, over his rebellious people. We see that God is sovereign over the past and future in the book of Daniel as we see God reveal his plan for the ages through his prophet Daniel. And we see also in the book of Daniel about God's sovereignty over what he has made and the laws governing what he has made. So, so much is there in the book of Daniel about the sovereignty of God. And so tonight I just briefly want to co uh, cover, and those in the Sunday school class are smiling, saying, yeah, briefly. Uh, but I just briefly want to cover uh, three, three, top, three, three uh, 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 topics tonight when we talk about the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. First of all, we want to look at the sovereignty of God among Israel in the book of Daniel. And then the sovereignty of God among the Gentiles in the book of Daniel. And then we want to look at the sovereignty of God among you and I and how it relates to us. First of all, looking at the sovereignty of God among Israel, we see the sovereignty, first of all, displayed within the inside, the nation of Israel. If you turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And so we're told that Nebuchadnezzar 
came and besieged Jerusalem. And we know that he did. And in verse 1, where it says that Nebuchadnezzar did it. But look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. So in verse 1, it says, Jeho- you know, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem. And he took, you know, and, and, and came against Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. But in verse 2, we told that it was God that gave King Jehoiakim and the articles of the house of God to Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. And he uses this heathen Gentile king to carry out his will and to carry out his punishment that he was had, uh, would come over the uh, nation of Israel as they would go and, and, into judgment for their sin and for disobeying the God's word, not letting the land rest and getting its Sabbath rest. And so there was 70 years of uh, captivity deemed upon the nation of Judah. And so three times, you know, that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes against uh, uh, the uh, nation of Israel, uh, 605 is what it's talking about here. And this is when he takes Daniel and all the treasures of the house of God down to Babylon, to Shinar, to his, to the God, to, to the house of his God, which would be the God of Marduk. Because at this time, Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan Gentile king. But yet and still, God continues to use this, uh, this pagan Gentile king and other uh, pagan Gentile kings in order to pass judgment on Israel. The nation of Israel had forsaken their God, and it's Jeremiah the prophet that tells them that you know, the southern kingdom will be going into captivity. It says their temple will be burned and Jerusalem will be destroyed. And as he takes them down into captivity, of course, some of the first ones to go are Daniel and the three Hebrew boys. And some of those, as we learn in uh, chapter one of Daniel, you know, some of the best and the brightest, you know, young men of uh, uh, Judah was taken down into Babylon, of course, you know, and this is where the story of Daniel begins as uh, him and his three friends decided themselves that they would not defile themselves, you know, from the king's table and eat the food or drink any other wine off of the king's table. You know, throughout history, God has used pagan nations to accomplish his purpose. Uh, he used Egypt uh, to, to incubate the young nation of Israel for 400 years, and he used a hard-hearted Pharaoh uh, to show his power and his greatness. And he used the nations of Assyria in 722, taking the nation, the northern nation, into captivity. And Babylon here in, in 605 and 586, you know, carrying the Jews into captivity. You know, in the book of uh, Jeremiah 25, 8 and 9, Nebuchadnezzar is even called God's servant. He is called God's choice servant even though he is a pagan king, even though he does not worship God, still, because of God's sovereignty, God will use this pagan king in order to bring judgment unto 
the nation of Israel. But God in all his wisdom and God in all his sovereignty has chosen a king that will allow them to be able to exercise their religion, for Daniel to be able to flourish in the, king, in the, in the Babylonian kingdom, to progress. Not only did he progress, you know, up into the government, but he also became chief over all the soothsayers, all the wise men, all of the, uh, the Chaldeans. He became head over them. And so it was because of the sovereignty of God that God brought them down into the uh, nation of an empire, Babylon, so that Babylon and so that Nebuchadnezzar could learn about this great God of the Jews. Because to, to Nebuchadnezzar, the Jews was just a, a fly in the ointment. There was just a, a headache for him. You know, and so he would, and that's why he would have to go back from time to time, you know, and, and uh, bring more people down and coming out and uh, come against uh, the, uh, you know, Jerusalem again. And because, why? Because this king, this vassal king that he put in there would, they would do wrong and then this one would do wrong and then they, he would have to come back and he would have to get things straight. He would have to the come back that and he would have to get things straight. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy. He would have to, to come back, back and he would have to, to get destroy their God temple allowed to take all of Nebuchadnezzar gold and stuff out of their temple. He would have to, that was no accident. It was part of the plan and the purpose of a sovereign God of Israel. And so now the Jews are in captivity in Babylon and not all the Jews go down even after the third time but more and more began to be brought down into uh, to Babylon, but there are still some Jews that are left over in the land. But the Jews have no land, the Jews have no king, and the Jews have no temple. That which gave them national identity, that which gave them their relationship to God. There's no land, there's no temple, there's no king sitting on David's throne. But God would use Daniel in Babylon. He would use Daniel in Babylon to show them that God is sovereign over history. And this sovereignty was essential to the Jews because it was the basis for their assurance that God would fulfill his covenant promises to the nation of Israel, that they need not worry, that this was not the end, that they would not spend all of their life down in the, in the Babylon and down uh, away from their beloved Jerusalem. This was not the end. There would be a time of judgment. There would be a time of persecution. There would be a time of severe persecution and judgment as they go through the time of the Gentiles. But God sets up this time in order to bring Daniel and down to Babylon, not only to introduce the God uh, of, of the God of the heaven to Nebuchadnezzar, but also to introduce him to God's plan for the ages and to let Israel know and let those Jews know that was in Babylon, let the Jews know that was back in Jerusalem, that it is not over. God has a plan, and God will bring them back to Jerusalem, the sovereignty of God. God would keep his promises. God had promised them in the Davidic covenant a king to sit on the throne, David's throne forever, of course, being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God will fulfill that promise. God had promised, had made with them the Palestinian covenant that they would have a land. God would fulfill that covenant. 
These covenants have got to be fulfilled. And so a sovereign God is telling them it's not the end. It will, you will go through some rough times, but it's not the end. And so we see that the sovereignty of God among the nation of Israel as they are in the nation of Israel, they've sinned against God, God passes judgment on them, and they are brought down into, the, uh, into Babylon as, as uh, in, in, uh, there, they are in exile, and we see how God's sovereignty in bringing those certain ones down into Babylon in order to do the work of God there in Babylon. God's sovereignty among the nation of Israel. Let's look next at God's sovereignty among the nations, and in particular, the sovereignty uh, the, the God's uh, 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 sovereignty of God among Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar is a key figure here when it comes to among the nations. And I want to spend just a little time with him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was king over one of the most powerful empires that's ever existed, the Babylon Empire. History tells us that he was arrogant, he was confident, and it appeared that he was in complete control of everything within the empire and that he was sovereign over even over his own life. There was none who would come against him. There was times that he could be very jovial, times that he could be very, uh, you know, uh, giving, and then other times that he could turn and be just as mean and just as nasty as you could be. But he was sovereign. He was a sovereign ruler, and he had been put there by God. It wasn't, it wasn't no more than just, you know, 40, 50 years ago that Babylon wasn't even on the map yet. The Assyrian Empire is what was what the uh, big empire during that time as, as they took in, in, uh, the, nation, the northern kingdom into captivity. But the capital of the Assyrian Empire was Nineveh, and we remember Nineveh with Jonah and how Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew how gracious God was. And he said, if I go to him, he said, you know, and preach to them, they will repent and you will forgive them of their sins. And I just don't want that. These are some very, very, very mean people. And they were. The Syrians were mean. The Syrians were very mean. They were, they, when, they would, when they would conquer people, they would, they would cut part of their, their, their hands off, their heads off. You know, they would completely decimate the land, uh, you know, as they, uh, when they, whatever they would destroy uh, their enemies. But yet Nahum had prophesied, even after they had, you know, uh, received from, from Jonah the word of God and they repented for a, a period of time, but Nahum has said that God would repay Nineveh for that meanness. And they did. In Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's father, he joined forces with the Medes this time, and they were able to defeat Nineveh. And by defeating Nineveh, they brought down the Assyrian Empire. And that leaves a void for a, 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 a strong empire in that part of the world. And God raised up Nebuchadnezzar in order to fill that vacuum. Nebuchadnezzar was in, in with his father, of course, down in Egypt. And he was fighting Egypt, had a very big battle in Egypt. And they defeated the Egyptians. And so he was coming, went back. And on his way back from defeating, you know, the Egyptians is when he stopped over in Judah. 
as he was going back to see because his father had gotten news of his father had died. And he brought the three, the Daniel and the three Hebrew boys down and, and many others down into Babylon at that time. And so Nebuchadnezzar becomes a focal point of the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. And we see a progression of Nebuchadnezzar realization then of the sovereignty of God. And we see it through his dreams and through the visions that he has, especially in, in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And, and I've tried to, you know, as much as possible, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens here uh, and see if I did this right. Okay, we did. Chapter 2. Okay, the statue. In Daniel chapter 2, we have the, the statue that he has a dream and a vision of. No sooner than Daniel and them had gotten down there and they had not eaten the, off the king's table and they, and they not drunk his wine and they passed all the tests and they were found to have, you know, much wisdom among them as Nebuchadnezzar uh, questioned him and his three Hebrew friends. Then in chapter 2, we see Nebuchadnezzar have the, the, the dream of the statue of the head of gold and the chest and arms of, of silver and then the belly was of, of uh, brass and then uh, the, uh, uh, the Roman was uh, uh, of uh, bronze and then you had the feet with iron and clay. And he wanted to know what that meant. And so he sent for all of his soothsayers, all of his wise men, all of the Chaldeans, all of his astrologers, and he asked them and says, I had this dream, but this dream has went away from me, and I need you to tell me what this dream was, and I need you to tell me what does this dream mean. And they said, basically what they told him was that it wasn't fair. If you tell us what the dream was, we can interpret the dream for you. And he says, but I told you that the dream has went away from me. I cannot remember the dream. And whether he could or not, we do not know for sure, but it seems he couldn't remember the dream. And he says, I want you to tell me the dream, and then you tell me the interpretation of the dream. And it's amazing that in Daniel chapter 2, in verse 10 and 11, it says, the Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such thing at any, uh, at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it's a rare thing that the king require, requires, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so they admit their weakness. They admit that they are not all as powerful as they tend to be. They admit that there's something missing that even they can't reach into Nebuchadnezzar's mind and pull out that dream out of his mind and then tell him what it means. And they say, Nebuchadnezzar, it really just isn't fair what you're doing. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in one of those fits that he has, he gets angry and he decides to kill them all. And he sends out the order to round up all of the wise men, the astrologers, the soothsayers, the Chaldeans, and they should be slain, every last one of them. And so that would include Daniel as well. But Daniel convinces the, the, the uh, captain who is supposed to carry out this execution to give him and his three friends some time to go and to consult with God. And as they go and consult with God, and God gives Daniel the dream, and, and, uh, and will give him the interpretation of the dream, 
and he finds that captain and says, just give, you know, let's go to Nebuchadnezzar and tell him, let's give me a little bit of time, a little bit of time. And he does. And he comes back to Nebuchadnezzar and he gives him the dream of the statue. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Because there's no other metal like gold. You are the standard. It is you. It, you are that head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. No one, no, the rest of the kingdoms that follow will not have the sovereignty that you have as a ruler over an empire. And then he goes down the list of the different empires that will come. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you may be the head of gold. Babylon is the greatest empire that ever is, but it will end. He says, and then the Medes and Persians are the, are the, are the, are the uh, arms uh, folded there uh, over the chest. And it says, they will defeat you, but their kingdom, their empire, it will end as well. And Alexander the Great, who, you know, has built, built the largest kingdom of all at such a young age, and the only thing that stopped him was boredom and the fact that his men just wanted to go home as they reached the, the, the uh, outskirts of India and they was ready to go back home to Greece. That's the only thing that stopped him. And then on the way back, he was going to make Babylon his, his headquarters, his, you know, where he was going to stay, but he died on the way back at 33 years old and had built that empire. But even that empire ended. And then the Romans would come. And even the Romans, as great as they were, was the only kingdom that kingdom does not, if they were defeated, but you don't see their kingdom ending because you do have the, uh, the ten toes that revive, you know, in the, the ten toes that revive uh, Roman Empire that will come at the end of times during the time of, of uh, tribulation. But then there was one more kingdom Daniel told him about. And that was that stone that was cut out of the mountain and that is hurled down at the statue and hits the statue at his feet and it crumbles down. And all the nations and all the empires during this time in the Gentiles that had rule and sway over the, over the nation of Israel, all of them tumbled down, all of them destroyed, but that one kingdom would last forever and that would be God's kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard that, he told Daniel in verse 26, he says, the king answered and said to Daniel, in whose name was Belshazzar, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king? But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king of Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And then he proceeds to tell him. And then at the end of the chapter, when the, after he tells him about the dream, in verse uh, 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel, not God, but Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings and revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. He still was a pagan at this point. Because he said it was a God of gods. 
he was still putting him in there with all the pantheon of gods that was uh, ever present there in the Babylonian Empire. He was God. He was a god. But he was a god just like all the other gods. Not yet has he realized the sovereignty of this God that is in heaven. And so we move from chapter 2 to chapter 3. And of course, we know the story of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the story of the, of, of the clicking button. Uh, chapter 3 is, yeah, there it is, the story of the fiery furnace. Moving from, you know, moving from Daniel chapter 2, the statue. Now he makes a statue. He sets this statue up. He wants everyone, when they hear the sound of the music, to worship this, this statue. And now he wants people to worship something that's not really a god. And, 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 and the people, when they hear the music, they begin to worship all except the three Hebrew boys. And then those people who are in power, they see them not kneeling down as Nebuchadnezzar has commanded. They go tell Nebuchadnezzar. He brings them in. He questions them, gives them an opportunity to say, okay, now I've asked you this. You know, I've, I had given you all uh, rewards. I've taken care of you all. You've had great positions. Good job in my, in my kingdom. He says, so now, well, won't you do this? You know, when you hear the music, will you not bow down? And they said, no, we will not bow down, Nebuchadnezzar. And he gets so mad that he says, then I will throw you in the fiery furnace. And he heats it up seven times. It's hot. He killed the, some of the men that's there to put, throw them into the fire, you know, are killed trying to throw them into the fire. And they are put into the fire. But before they go into the fire, they tell Nebuchadnezzar in verse 16 in chapter 3, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, be able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of, of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. If it is God's will for him to deliver us, he will deliver us. But if it's God's will to let us perish in the fire, then we will perish in the fire, because we will not serve those, that golden image. We will not bow down to it. Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown in, and as they are thrown in, and he goes, they're in there for a little while, and when he goes to the door to look into the, uh, the furnace, he asks the people there, he says, did I not throw three? He says, yes, but I see four, and one is as the image of the Son of God walking around the fire. And he calls them to come out of the fiery furnace. And when they come out, nothing is singed, nothing smells of smoke, nothing is singed, nothing is burnt, not their clothes, not anything on them. And he tells them, and he tells all the people around them, he says in verse 29, he says, I would therefore, I make a decree, because he's Nebuchadnezzar. He says that every people, nation, and language would speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. But he's still not there. He still hasn't recognized the sovereignty of God. So we move to Daniel chapter 4. And in Daniel chapter 4, we encounter the, the vision or the dream of the tree and this great tree that he had a dream of and this great tree of, of a gigantic tree with all sorts of birds and animals that was inside this tree and he wanted to know what did this mean because he saw the tree the tree as it flourished and then all of a sudden he saw the tree cut down he saw part of it not cut down to the root 
but he did see the tree cut down and he wanted to know, okay, what does this dream mean? What does this vision mean? And he calls his soothsayers and he calls the Chaldeans and astrologers together again, but no one can tell him what the dream means until Daniel comes and Daniel begins and tells him what the dream means. And Daniel is so upset with the dream because he realizes what this means. He realizes that that tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems that him and Nebuchadnezzar from by this time had developed a, a relationship. And he realizes that, you know, this, this King Nebuchadnezzar, who he knows, this King Nebuchadnezzar, who he works for, you know, he, that he says that you are that tree. And you are the one that will be cut down. He says, but you know what, Nebuchadnezzar? He says, why don't you try to be a little bit better? God has given you a chance, Okay. God has given you an opportunity. Why can't you be a little bit more nicer to people? Be a little bit more kinder uh, to people, Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe it will go good with you. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. And so God still waits a full year. And after a full year, Nebuchadnezzar says is walking through his garden. And he looks over at what he has built. And he, when he says in verse 30, the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of this kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty all for me? And Babylon was one beautiful, terrific city. It was the home of the hanging gardens which they have never really, they've never really found. One of the seven wonders of the world. Babylon, seven, built as a rectangular, 17 miles square, walls that went up 90 feet, and, and, and double walls, triple walls, moats going through and, and, uh, and uh, the, uh, the city, uh, the Euphrates River running through the city, and boats that ran on the Euphrates River. They were so well protected, and that city was so beautiful, and everything around them was so beautiful. It was a very great city that Nebuchadnezzar had built, and he was proud of himself, so proud of himself that he had forgot what God said. And the moment that he gave all of the, the recognition to himself, God struck him down that very hour, it says. And he found himself for seven years, he found himself living like an animal. Nails that had become claws. His hair looking just matted down and wet with the dew, looking like feathers on him. Eating grass. They fed him grass. They, chased, they, they took him out of the palace and got him away from people. And even the, 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 uh, the chronicles of Babylon record nothing really being done that seven years that Nebuchadnezzar is in this condition. But it says finally... There in, chap in, in uh, chapter 4, in verse 34. And this is what we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Because when you look at verse 34, it says, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. Nebuchadnezzar was living as an animal. An animal in the fields with the oxen. He, did, he, looked, he looked down at the ground in order to get his food. 
He maybe looked out to see where he was going, but he was with the animals until finally one day something caused him to look up into the heavens. And we said when he looked up into the heavens, his understanding came back to him. What was it that caused him to look up into the heavens? None other but that sovereign God that had struck him down. Just as one day God caused you who were dead in trespasses and sin. And Nebuchadnezzar looked up. He says, I got my understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And understand, chapter 4 starts out being written by Nebuchadnezzar. It is his personal testimony. And he says, I want everybody to know what happened, how I encountered this sovereign God of the Jews. He says, and I saw him this most high, verse 35, and then in verse 35 it says, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? And at that same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom my honor and brightness returned unto me, as God had promised him that it would. And my counselors and my Lord sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. And look what he says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. When Daniel interpreted the golden statue, the statue, he praised Daniel. When the three Hebrew boys came out of the furnace, he praised them. But when God brought him to his senses and he realized how he had been abased by God and he looked up into heaven and his reasoning and understanding returned back unto him, he realized he had, being even though he was the go-ahead, that didn't mean a thing. He praised God. He praised God. He had finally got it. Nebuchadnezzar got an opportunity, a chance a lot of people didn't get. His son, his grandson, you know, uh, uh, Bel, uh, 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 Belshazzar, in, you know, in chapter 5, he didn't get that opportunity. He went and took the, he, 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 he didn't learn anything from the experience of his grandfather and he heard the story. He didn't hear anything of how proud he was and how base he had to be and to live like an animal for seven years. He didn't hear anything about the fact of how he praised this God of, of, of Israel and called him the most high and realized that it was him who had given him his kingdom, him who had given him his being and everybody there being. He went and took and, and had a party for over a thousand people with drinks and partying with all of his lords and his wives and his concubines. He is the one that went and told them to go to Shiner to get the, to get the temple uh, gold, to get the cups, to get the vessels. They are the ones who then began to party and to drink out of those cups and out of those vessels as they worship idols made of gold and, and silver and iron and wood. And they, and, and, and they are the ones then who saw the writing on the wall. And God told him when he called for Daniel to give him the meaning 
of the writing on the wall, Daniel delivered the blow and said, you have been weighed and found wanting. He didn't get an opportunity like his grandfather did. That very night, the Medes and the Persians took Babylon and killed Belshazzar. The sovereignty of God is an awesome doctrine. And in Daniel, it, it's becoming even more awesome. I mean, we haven't even, we were just now beginning to touch it. We've touched some of the prophetic things, but and we'll touch some more of it here after a while, but the sovereignty of God is just laced all the way through the book of Daniel. It permeates every page of the book of Daniel. But that's the book of Daniel. How about the sovereignty of God among you and I? What, 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 how, does, how does the sovereignty of God, how does it apply to our life? What, what good is it for us? What can we draw from this sovereignty of God in our life? Four things I want to leave you with about the sovereignty of God in your life. First of all, it releases you from much of the anxiety in your life today. Isaiah 26, 3, thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts and trusteth in thee. Being in tune with the sovereignty of God, recognizing the sovereignty of God in your life, over your life, relieves you from anxiety. It keeps you from pride. According to Proverbs 16, 18, it says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before it fall. And it was pride that brought down Nebuchadnezzar. It was pride that brought down his grandson, Belshazzar. He says, but, but if we, we, today, we, if we recognize the sovereignty of God, it will help us to curb the pride in our life because we realize that we really are nothing. And we realize that he is everything. And we realize that nothing in our lives is an accident. We realize that our whole being and everything that we do comes from God. And the very people that we are, the very place that we are at, the people that we know, who I am, what makes me up, the person that I am, how tall I am, how short I am, how thin I am, how not thin I am, where I live at, where I work at. All of it is because of a sovereign God. And sometimes we'll try our best to change it. I'm not satisfied with this or satisfied with that. That's how God made us. Not only keeps you from pride, knowing that God is in control, and it tells us that we need to give God, you know, praise and gratitude for who he is and his grace toward us. But the knowing about the sovereignty of God also releases you from fear. Because people who live in an awareness of sovereign of God become more bold and confident, as we saw in Daniel and his three friends. Bold to live in the nation of Babylon as young men. Bold. Daniel was bold enough to tell the king one time that, no, king, that's not right. That's not right. Bold for those three Hebrew boys to say, if God saves us, or he saves us. If he doesn't, we are not going to bow down to your idol. It gets us bold in our witness, bold to be able to, 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 to have our web, to have our being in this world today. We're not fearful 
of what the end will be. We're not fearful of the times that we live in. We aren't cowering and, 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 and turning and tossing and turning and worried about every disease, worried about every, everything that's happening in the world today. Wars and rumors of wars, about lawlessness that is abounding. We're not worried because we know the end. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't concerned, but it doesn't worry us to the point that we do not know what to do because we realize the sovereignty of God in our life. You know what fear means? You know, 1st, 2nd Timothy 2, 1 through 7 says, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, uh, that the, he hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of love and the power and a sound mind. Fear is false expectations appearing real. That's the acrostic for fear. Because most of the time, that which we fear don't really even come to pass. God is in control. And last and not least, knowing about the sovereignty of God, it makes us realize that I exist. You exist. The members of this church exist. Everyone exists. Not for ourselves, but for God. The sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. Now let me ask you, who's in charge? Who's in control? Father, just a sample, Lord, of the, of the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. These are some perilous times that we live in, and it's getting more and more each day. But we need not fear or doubt who is in charge. Because we realize that our sovereign God is an awesome God. And he is in charge. In Jesus' name we pray.